Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody. This is your host, Bob Wintermute, welcoming you back to New Books in Military History. Each month, we pick a new book related to topics in military history and interview the author to learn new insights about their work and the historical process. This time, we're interviewing two authors of essays in an edited collection, Scraping the Barrel, the Military Use of Substandard Manpower, 1860-1960. With 11 different essays covering a range of national case studies over the modern era, Scraping the Barrel offers numerous points of view on the issue of substandard manpower, what it is, and how military institutions revise their perspectives of it in times of great need. First, we speak with the book's editor, Sanders Marble, about the challenges of creating an edited collection, as well as about his own essay, Below the Bar, The U.S. Army and Limited Service Manpower. Then we will take some time to speak with another essay contributor, Thomas Sticht, about his essay, Project 100,000 in the Vietnam War and Afterward, after which we'll return to Sanders Marble for a few closing comments. Welcome back to New Books in Military History. This is your host, Bob Wintermute. Today we're going to be departing a bit from our normal format as we're interviewing several authors related to their contributions to Sanders Marble's edited collection on manpower readiness. The book is entitled Scraping the Barrel, The Military Use of Substandard Manpower, 1860-1960. How are you doing today, Sanders? Fine, Bob. Thanks for having me. Good to have you. Um, For our readers, in essence, this book is a collection of case studies which examine how military institutions have defined readiness and eligibility for military service. Also, how wartime necessity and contingency alters peacetime notions of service eligibility. As the editor of the book, Sanders is going to be our first guest. He's going to place the the project into the proper context and speak briefly about his own contribution to the volume. Following Sanders' interview, I'll introduce a second contributor, giving him a chance to speak about his own piece. And then at the end, we're going to return to Sanders' marble for a summary of the work at large. That said, Sanders, why don't you introduce yourself? Okay. I went uh, undergraduate to William & Mary and then did graduate work at King's College, uh, University of London, um, where I didn't really pay attention to manpower. I was looking at artillery in World War One, but as I uh, perhaps matured or certainly aged as a scholar, um, I got interested in other facets. And uh, uh, somebody talked to me about uh, actually how the Germans used, um, uh, well, reached deeper and deeper into their manpower pool in World War Two, And when I was introduced to that idea. I started looking around uh, for other examples, and when you look for something, you often find things. Uh, they, they may not be the best examples because you're sometimes you look too hard, but um, you find them. And 
then uh, I got lucky. I, I got the idea for a, a book on this because I didn't see anything like it. Mm-hmm. There's all kinds of work about elites. Um, elite units, very common. Um, and uh, a look at military elites, often the sort of um, sociological perspective of officers and um, uh, military coups and who takes, you know, uh, who runs the military in their interaction with political elites. Right. But not so much with uh, the the uh, guys on uh, the, the the substandard guys with uh, uh, packs on their backs and uh, you know, shovels or, or rifles in their hands. Mm-hmm. Um, and I looked around and you know I, I, I had these uh, case studies in mind. Looked around to, for to find people to write about them and uh, was very lucky to find people that were not only uh, interested in writing about it, but uh, knew about it. You know, uh, these people know way more about their subject than I do, which is, uh, and uh, I try and lure you into a digression here, I think one of the strengths of an edited collection is that you get people, uh, you can get the subject matter experts in uh, where there's not a full book to be written on any one of these topics. Right. Um, and certainly uh, another strength is I could never write about most of the, most or even probably any of these topics as well as somebody who knows it well. Um, and certainly I couldn't do most of the foreign case studies because I don't have the languages. Um, so that, I think those, that's a strength of uh, an edited collection. Um, mm-hmm. And for the, the people that like this or inter- are interested in the uh, peeling the sausage open, um, the drawback was, in some ways, the, the length that it took this project to get done. Right. Well, I'm sure when you're working with so many disparate voices who are all experts in their field, you know, it's very hard for you as the editor to bring them to heel to say, you know, we only have a certain amount of space limitations or a certain amount of uh, word count that we're permitted. And, you know, as much as you would like to let them have free reign, you really can't. Um. Most of them were very good. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, it was my first editing uh, uh, experience, and I am lucky. Um, <laughs> I also learned as I went. Uh, there was indeed, uh, I'll put it no more firmly than negotiation about word length with uh, some of the authors. Sure. And um, what was fair um, to you know to not just get into the the nuances and complexities of their case study, but not swamp the book with you know, a, uh, a dissertation on, on one topic and then sure. a, you know, a, sh- a short overview of something else. Well, I mean, you certainly have some pretty significant names at work as well, too, who, who are making contribu- contributions to the work. Dennis Showalter, Val Lumens, uh, Tom Stitch, who we'll be talking to later in his role with Project 100,000. Um, those are just a few of the names of the people who are, who are involved. And you know, I can see very much that would be an issue about trying to balance these different voices and make sure that no one receives top billing or over any, any other. Yeah, it was, uh, especially the first time out of the box uh, mm-hmm. on it, it was um, a little more daunting. And I, I, I think everybody came away uh, content. Uh, I think somewhere between content and pleased. <laughs> Well, as a reader, I was quite content with the book. I mean, it's a fascinating series of questions and topics that just go, I feel, far deeper than superficial issues about physical um, 
physical competency or, or physical strength when you're defining what substandard is. You know, in fact, you yourself know in the introduction that the term substandard is extremely subjective. You know, it's open to redefinition across not only across the scope of different conflicts, but across the duration of a single conflict. Does this shifting definition of normalcy, uh, is, is it something that occurs regularly, you think? Yeah. Um, I, I think pretty much every long war, um, uh, or even, sometimes even a short war, um, thinking you know, a short war, the war of 18, uh, the uh, Spanish-American War, from April to officially December, the peace treaty in December, but you know, the fighting's over in, in June, July, mm-hmm. uh, 1898, you know, a few months uh, of, of actual conflict, and as soon as the, uh, the U.S. tries to expand its army, uh, uh, manpower standards, peacetime manpower standards went out the window. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it, it's certainly noticeable in the the big mobilizations, um, uh, the, the industrial wars of the 20th century, right? Um, where you have sustained combat, uh, large forces needed, lots of casualties, uh, men who are, and, and mostly this focuses on men, um, because uh, I felt that, that women in the military uh, was a subject that was already well explored. Sure. Uh, and, and it is different from saying a woman is a substandard man. Uh, <laughs> But you know, I'm not going to touch that one. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it, it's different. Um, but um, you have men who have been wounded or injured or sick and, and can return to some duty, but mm-hmm. not full duty. And mm-hmm. then the military is, is left with the question, I can't find a man from the civilian world who is any better than this guy. What What's the right answer? Do Has he served his... Has this injured or, or wounded man served his duty to his country? Should he be discharged? And I, I get somebody who is less experienced, but uh, no physically better or mentally better, um, or you know, by whatever manpower standards we are judging, uh, because uh, many of these uh, case studies, some of these, well, uh, race is a factor, uh, sure. ethnicity can be a factor uh, in. Uh, what is substandard, and I didn't get also uh, didn't get uh, into uh, use of colonial troops, um, right. troops from an empire. Again, uh, th- there is more work on imperial uh, levies, uh, raising uh, uh, colonial or imperial troops, mm-hmm. um, and I also <clears throat> there's a limit on how long a book can be. This, this right. book, I, I hope, opens the topic to other people to uh, to revisit these in more depth or look at other uh, time periods. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, you, you could go back to the, the early modern period. Um, you could look at some of the Asian countries, uh, which I didn't get into, mm-hmm. um, or uh, look at navies and air forces. True. True. You know, as I as I think about it and, and re- reflect upon reading the book too, I mean, it's it's what we're talking about in terms of eligibility and substandard qualifications and what what makes one fit. It is so transcendent. I mean, it can, we're talking about issues related to gender and masculinity. We're talking about issues of citizenship and representation in the in the civic model or the the. Um, the larger consensus, and you know, you're right. There's so many different ways that those themes can also be interwoven into future study. 
which I, I think is what part of what makes this a landmark work for people in the field. Again, I well, I, I hope so. Um, mm. um, uh, partly because I hope it's it does start um, discussion and debate, mm-hmm. uh, and and also uh, reaches uh, um, beyond uh, the the military history community, and and the, most of the people I got to write this would call themselves a military historian. Uh, Tom Stick is a, a sociologist, mm-hmm. uh, unabashedly, and I don't think less of him for it. <laughs> uh, and, and I think for looking at Project 100,000, that's the right uh, mindset and skill set. Well, particularly since apparently he was present, present at the creation as well, which gives a whole another kind of voice, I think, to right. his, his piece. But, but I, I think... Um, it would be good for uh, some of the disability historians, for the you know, people in, who thinking of themselves in, in other specialties in history, as you identify them, you know, citizenship, um, social history, uh, to uh, look at the military uh, and look at this topic. Right. Well, let's turn to your own essay, which was titled Below the Bar, The U.S. Army and Limited Service Manpower. Um, and, of course, this is related to uh, the interwar years. Well, the First World War and the interwar years uh, between 1919 and 1941. I think there's a little surprise for experts on American mobilization, the concept of the limited service or, or the C classification in the Selective Service Act. But can you briefly summarize what this classification meant, what, what defined being in this classification for our listeners? Sure. Um, World War One, the draft uh, was written very broadly, um, but when the U.S. Uh, and, and the first million men uh, were drafted and had, uh, were, they were eighteen to no, twenty-one to thirty, and had generally uh, good health, um, and because the, the, the army was not expecting to expand too large. The second draft comes along when Pershing says, I don't need just one million men, I need several million men. Uh, the draft ages get extended down to 18 and up to, uh, I think, 40. Um, and uh, the manpower standards have to be lowered uh, to, to meet the uh, numerical targets. And the Army also finds that it has a need for people with certain skills. Uh, needed carpenters to build uh, tra- building uh, barracks and, and uh, mess halls in the U.S. It needed electricians. It needed painters. It needed drivers. It needed pharmacists. It needed all kinds of people with specialty skills. But those specialty skills are not typically carrying a, a rifle with a bayonet. And in fact, nobody in civilian life does that. And mm-hmm. It's pretty much against the law to, to, to have a private army. Um, so the Army said, uh, was, was convinced by, interestingly, some uh, psychologists who were pretty much working in uh, human resources uh, that you don't need – if you need a carpenter, you need a carpenter. You don't need uh, a man who is in his physical prime uh, and, but needs to be taught how, which end of a hammer is which. Mm-hmm. It makes more sense for you to take a, a trained carpenter who is of lower physical skill uh, – or physical ability, uh, and, and use him as a carpenter. And this fit, I think, the progressive ideals of the time, 
Mm-hmm. Uh, it looked very practical. It looked very uh, businesslike, and this is, of course, the era of Taylorism in the U.S. and, right. and spreading, spreading abroad. Um, although I'm sure that I would get slapped upside the head and told much better dates for Taylorism and stuff. Uh, <laughs> Not by me, I assure you. <laughs> okay. Uh, but it, it looks sensible, and, and on paper it is sensible. If you can, if you can stabilize, you know, if you find the right man for the right job, and then no other circumstance changes. You know, right. the, the Army's needs change, or the man's abilities change. Um, they don't even need him in a different place. The construction project never finishes. Uh, if things don't change, um, then all is well. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the Army, but the Army embraces it. They draft in <clears throat> tens of thousands of men who are who are deliberately called up because of their skills, with the expectation that they will be below physical standards. Mm-hmm. Um, and there is also a lowering of physical standards in the second draft. But that, that's um, those men, even with the lower standard, those men are considered um, A-class manpower, top, not, top-notch manpower. Right. right. Uh, and the, uh, the substandard men are largely used in uh, administrative jobs. Uh, a lot of them go to administering the draft, which was run out of the Provo Marshal General's office. Mm-hmm. Um, some of them go to uh, uh, paper-pushing jobs, some into warehouses mm-hmm. uh, where they need smart is not necessary uh, because substandard was um, – below standard in anything. Right. So it was very broad brush. If you were you know, missing um, half your left foot or you were missing a few gray cells, uh, you were substandard. And, and mm-hmm. that leads to problems in World War II of it's too broad a brush. Right. Well, so much so much of what you're describing seems to be tied as well, like you said, the progressive notions of whiteness and identity, not just you know scientific uh, classification. What I'm getting to is that it seems like many of the men that we categorized as limited service were recent immigrants to the United States. And, you know, that was their sole limitation. Um, how was this policy received throughout the country? Um, I, there was a, um, a small clamor in the uh, probably the, the, um, the chattering classes, the, the, uh, the middle class that would be decided in, in, of course, these progressive days were – the working class was meant to progress, but not so much that they really challenged the the, uh, the ruling class, mm-hmm. perhaps. But um, um, when the, the 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 results of the first draft are in, and and people are shocked at how many men are not meeting manpower or physical standards to get into the army. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think there is a a hope for uplift. Um, that the the draftees who were illiterate in English, they might be liter- might well be literate in the, their native tongue, you know, they're immigrants, uh, uh, would be taught enough English. They would be they would be Americanized. That right. Men who um, had not had the opportunity to finish even grade school uh, would be drafted into the army. They would be taught enough to be useful to the army and thus be more useful to the country. Uh, again, some uplift there. Um, 
and uh, also there was a, a hope for uh, physical remediation, some uh, hernias, for instance, or flat feet, mm-hmm. where there were simple operations that could be performed on a man. Um, interesting questions then about uh, consent, which don't really get raised because informed consent isn't really a concept Right. Time. I'm thinking in terms of dental care too. I would imagine, you know, for the first yeah. time, some people having their teeth actually cared for properly. Yes, um, uh, dental insurance did not really exist at the time, uh, and uh, a lot, of, most of the work of the Army Dental Corps was yanking and drilling and filling, uh, mm-hmm. not much creating false teeth, but uh, fixing at least at the, the macro level, what was, was already there. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I, I think there was a certain selfish element uh, for the chattering classes because if you could Americanize, or, or you know, it, sorry, if you could physically improve or educationally improve uh, somebody from a tenement or a sharecropper, what uh, black or white doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. Uh, then you don't have to draft what my son. Right, right. That's something I, in my own work I've come across with reference to letters from Pennsylvania farmers to the Secretary of War, Newton Baker, complained about that very issue, that in their communities they see their own sons being taken in larger numbers. And these are all WASP families, mm. WASP, what they describe as the local hunkies or the local poles and such, people who are working in steel mills and, and doing other industrial labor were being left behind. And, of course, all of these letters have connotations of a declining level of whiteness and, and the effect on the nation's um, regenerative powers in peacetime. It's quite fascinating reading, and I can imagine and that that plays out as well in this debate. I think so. Um, I, I didn't get into uh, too much the internal uh, politics or either the external politics in, in the country. Mm-hmm. This idea seems to have, have slipped down the Army's throat w- with virtually no opposition. Mm. Uh, inside the Army. Uh, I, I think it did impress the Army uh, with the efficiency. Um, when they're building Camp, uh, whatever it is, say Camp Travis in uh, North Texas, um, uh, they have to, you know, they need carpenters, they need electricians, they need plumbers. And this way, uh, they can fi- find them easily. Uh, and they fall in love with it. In fact, they start saying, well, any job that's not right up in the front lines um, can be uh, coded for the the man with the skills instead of being a, a perfect physique. Hmm. Um, and I, however, uh, I think there's some fa- the, the failings in here um, are that things change over time. Right. And perhaps in World War One, the war was over too soon for the U.S. to um, find the. Uh, the shortcomings. Well, what happened to the limited service category after 1919? It didn't just disappear, did it? The men pretty much did, uh, but the category gets written into uh, pl- well, not war plans, but mobilization plans. Uh, and they say, we will do this again uh, after the, the war. And, and some of the, the very fat 
uh, there's a, the, the Committee for the Classification of Personnel, which was the psychologists who had pitched this idea to the Army, mm-hmm. uh, they write up, uh, volume one is what they did um, in finest back-padding historical uh, term. <laughs> and volume two is, here's the forms that you will need for next time, and here's the improvements over the, the, uh, the flaws that we had this time, because we didn't know what we were getting into. Uh, and uh, they left that on the shelf. Um, there was uh, discussion of it at places like the Army War College and uh, what was in the Army Industrial College, uh, where they're not just thinking about efficient use of manpower in the Army, but also saying, if we, effic- if we the Army, efficiently use men, uh, then we will disrupt the labor force less. We won't call up uh, a thousand guys, disrupt the, their work for their companies and the, mm-hmm. the war industry, and only take two hundred. Um, we will get, you know, we will get a higher, a higher percentage of people that, when we call them up, will be usable for us, and, and therefore less disruption. Which is, uh, you know, again, it's it's Taylorism at work, but outside just the military. The military saw itself as part of um, a system for the war effort. Uh, but it stays on the shelf. There, there's plans on how to use it, uh, when general mobilization is called, mm-hmm. uh, and then uh, Franklin Roosevelt never calls for general mobilization. Uh, there's never a... Uh, Mobilization happens differently in World War II. Right. Well, how well does the system work in the Second World War? You, you insinuate or you, you imply that it doesn't quite work the way they had hoped. Uh, I, I explained that, in fact, it really doesn't work out the way they expected. First, the draft is uh, limited um, and uh, only, done, uh, only uh, top quality men are called up. Uh, because the, the, they don't need uh, to go. There's no pressing demand for numbers before an actual declaration of war. Mm-hmm. Um, and then uh, they do bring call men up. Uh, a lot of the problem in World War II is, uh, comes by crossing the uh, concepts of limited uh, service uh, Quality and uh, psychological um, uh, value. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the, the psychiatrists and psychologists both start saying that um, there are a lot of men who are of questionable stability, um, and the army is panicked because the, the theory of the time is that these men are much more likely to break down in combat right. or break down in service, if they, even if they don't see combat. Therefore, it is much better to screen them out. Uh, so uh, there's also, uh, with genuine uh, support for the war, there's really no question that, uh, and the Army is, believes that it will have pretty much unfettered access to the nation's manpower pool. Mm-hmm. So a lot of people say, uh, why, commanding officers say, why would I take a limited service man, even if he's got skills, when I can send him back and mm-hmm. he'll get discharged and I'll get a, uh, a general service man, a fully fit man, um, 
probably with usable skills. Uh, mm-hmm. So there's a, there's an optimism. There's no, you know, the senior officers that have been trained between the wars on seeing the the army and the, the economy as both necessary for the war effort. Uh, there's not enough of those. Uh, certainly at the small unit level, battalion commanders were discharging men left and right. Um, and so by, in World War II, you find that hundreds of thousands of men are, are called up, they are drafted, they receive some training, they are sent to a unit, and then their commander says, ah, I don't want you. And then they get tossed out of the army. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're not complaining, most of them. Um uh, but um, they are now exempt from the draft. They can never. They would have to volunteer to serve, which I don't think very many of them do. Um, and 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 in all this, I have to say, I'm largely looking at policy. It's very hard to find anything at the individual level. Right. Expect somebody that that had a great deal of time could look look through the surviving information at the National Personnel Records Center. And say, well, that's that's the biggest question: is what surviving information there is. Obviously. Um, and I don't know. Um, there is material about policy. Uh, I found one memoir from a guy who had high blood pressure, was classified as limited service, uh, and said, no, 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 I don't want to be called limited service. And he went off to war. Mm. The individual um, role in accepting this status, too. Yeah. Um, and, and I think that's one, perhaps one reason uh, in the broader picture why substandard manpower isn't a topic is that um, you know, I, I, the example I have was a man who was had high blood pressure. Mm-hmm. He, you know, um, he would have been in the same category, administrative category, as somebody who had half a left foot from somebody who was uh, stupid, mm-hmm. uh, from somebody who was partly deaf, somebody who had you know, not all their teeth, as you mentioned. Somebody had a, had, a, had you know stomach ulcers, venereal disease. You know. Yeah. Uh, and in civilian life, they have no similar identity. Uh, there's no shared identity among these groups. So um, the Army class categorizes them one way, um, but you know, there's no... You know, a lot of uh, disability history is looking at identifiable groups mm-hmm. and, and sometimes self-identifying groups. Uh, and these, these people aren't self-identifying as limited service. Because it's a, it's a label that somebody else gave them right. uh, for a short period of their life. Right. And a very uh, imprecise label at that. Yeah. Um, but uh, basically the Army, uh, to, to, to sort of uh, wrap that up, the Army uh, goes into the war with limited service, uh, doesn't try, and, and I don't think there's good faith in trying to implement it. Mm-hmm. Uh, because a lot of people say, well, why should we do this? And it um, finds the long-term problems in managing it. And by 19, late 43, they are looking for a new system, and in 40, early 44, um, they bring in a, a system that uh, says that you're more precisely identifies your, your physical uh, abilities. Mm-hmm. Um, Looks at your uh, endurance, uh, your upper and lower. Uh, do you, are your are, uh, arms and shoulders sound? Are your legs and feet sound? Um, is your hearing okay? Is your sight okay? 
Uh, there's six categories, each of which is rated one through four, mm-hmm. uh, which is you know, 24 times more detailed than uh, saying uh, yes or no, limited service or general service. They, the system is much better at identifying the physical requirements for a particular position, whether it's plumber or uh, truck driver or infantryman, um, than the, uh, the previous system. Mm-hmm. Um, but trying to implement it during wartime is um, too much. It, it's you know, uh, doing a new physical examination on every man in the army when you have eight million, and then resorting them. Right. Uh, it was just too much. So right. it's not until after the war that the physical profile system really uh, takes effect. Great. Well, we're going to come back to Sanders in a few moments. But first, we're going to turn to another. Of the co of the authors in the collection, Thomas Sticht. Now, as I described earlier, Scraping the Barrel is an edited collection of essays. Each of them deal with a different aspect of the military use of substandard manpower in modern times. We're going to turn our attention now briefly to one of the other contributors to the work, Thomas Stitched, author of the essay Project 100,000 in the Vietnam War and Afterward. Tom, thanks for joining us. Thank you. It's my pleasure. Uh, before we discuss the, es- discuss the essay itself, can you take a few moments to tell us about yourself and how you became interested in this subject? Oh, sure. Yeah, in 1965, I got a brand new Ph.D. from the University of Arizona, and uh, my first job was at the University of Louisville working with learning problems for blind students. Uh, and then I went from there to the uh, University of Pittsburgh to work with uh, astronauts on communication skills. And while I was working at Pittsburgh, I got a phone call from people in Monterey, California, asked me if I would uh, be interested in coming out and doing research on listening skills and literacy skills of people who were going to be coming into the military with aptitude scores well below what they ordinarily would accept. So in a very real way, this isn't just a purely academic research interest. You were actually a participant Oh, that's right. No, I was there, and uh, I went to then uh, Monterey, California, and began work. Uh, and I was in the background to the work. Then I learned that in 1966, about August 1966, uh, Secretary of Defense Robert Strange McNamara, that was his name, Robert McNamara had uh, started a project where they were going to bring in 100,000 people with aptitude scores below the uh, ordinarily accepted level, and uh, they were interested in how to go about training these people better, and they uh, had brought me in because they thought the military might use listening skills more than literacy skills in some of their training, and that would help overcome some of the learning problems of these new Project 100,000 people. And so I I did that. I went to Monterey and began working on the Project 100,000, eventually moving into the design of the uh, new uh, literacy program for the Army called the Functional Literacy Program that uh, subsequently was implemented in all Army training uh, stations around the country. Okay. And that that's how I got into uh, Project 100,000, and mostly uh, in terms of doing research and training development rather than policy analysis. That came along later. Okay. Well, for our listeners who aren't, may not be familiar with Project 100,000, who haven't read the book yet, um, um, can, can we 
review what it was? I mean, as I understand it, it was a program that was intended to not only produce extra manpower for the military, but also was part of President Johnson's own war on poverty. That's correct. When the war, well, in 1966, uh, well, probably 1964, President Johnson uh, announced the war on poverty, and he also began conversations with uh, his Secretary of Defense, uh, Robert McNamara, on how the military might get involved in this war on poverty. And at that time, in the 1960s, early 60s, there was just a huge amount of uh, inner-city rioting, high unemployment rates for uh both African-American and white youth, uh, I'm, I'm talking unemployment, 30 to 40 percent. And so there was a lot of problem going on in the cities. And Johnson wanted to bring some of the uh, people out of those cities, make them uh, a part then of his uh, war in Vietnam. Now, that, for, 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 just to interrupt you just for a second, though, it wasn't, uh, he wasn't purely targeting urban youth, though, was he? Wasn't he also targeting rural poor is the rule oh yes as well? oh sure it wasn't strictly that no no it was whoever it they, people came in from both the rural and the uh inner cities but i'm saying a lot of the urgency came out of the rioting right. and stuff that was taking place right and so uh in 1966 then mcnamara announced the project hundred thousand and uh the goal was to bring people in who were being excluded more or less from society bring them in give them training give them some good medical care, uh, and uh, give them opportunity for education due to, you know, with the military paying for it, and then to discharge them later on with a leg up in being more successful in society and escaping the, uh, the cycles of poverty that were talked about at the time. That was okay. the overall policy thrust of that. Right. Now, now, strictly speaking, what was it that rendered these individuals, you know, to use the, the language of our book, substandard manpower? Uh-huh. What, what exactly qualified them to be, be described as such? Oh, well, they were within the uh, Armed Forces Qualification Test uh, standards of between the 10th and the 30th percentile. And that was considered by the military uh, policymakers as uh, undesirable, as being slow to train, unusable in many uh, cases. That's, that's how they were described. They were low mental aptitude. And that was not uh, a welcome kind of terminology for people who uh, run the military. So uh, they came into the military then uh, from that kind of a background of having been excluded and at the time when uh, when the Project 100,000 was started, the Army Times raised the issue and said, uh, are we likely to get any use from these people? And the answer is no, as if past performance is any indication. And so these Project 100,000 people came into the military under serious constraints. The, uh, for one thing, the Army Times didn't think we should be fighting two wars, the war on poverty and the war in Vietnam. At the same time, the Army shouldn't be doing that, they thought. Uh, and also, it was, this was a project started by McNamara, who was arguably the, the most uh, hated Secretary of Defense in the country's <laughs> history because of the uh, war in Vietnam. So there was all this social unrest, all this, and under those circumstances, people were brought in who had been excluded, and there was a tremendous amount of uh, bias, I would call it, about 
so-called low-aptitude people. And in Senate hearings, Senator Saltonstall referred to these as the the, the low mental uh, aptitude who are out there committing crimes, raping women, and so forth. And uh, mm. so it was a it was a tremendous uh, amount of hostility both within the society at large and within the military in specific. Yeah, and I, I, noticed guys, that, I noticed that you, in, the, in the, uh, the article you described, that one person described them as McNamara's moron corps. That's right. When I interviewed uh, uh, Mr. McNamara years after the project, he told me that. He said this, the people called it McNamara's moron corps. And so there was this whole pervasive kind of bias against the lower mental aptitude. And there was some considerable amount of racism involved because large percentages of the people scoring low on these paper and pencil tests, paper and pencil tests were uh, African-American. So th- all these factors contributed. That is the, the hate of the war in Vietnam. Remember the, uh, the shootings on Ohio State University. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so all of that then led to very bad feelings about Project 100,000. Mm-hmm. And when I was asked then uh, years later, to analyze how those people had done, uh, I looked at the official statistics and came to complete con- different conclusion from almost all of the oratory that had been going on and the rhetoric going on in which the Project 100,000 was declared a total failure and a disaster for the military. And uh, so that that's what I've written about now, again, bringing up to date uh, newer research into the uh, chapter in Scraping the Barrel. The, the actual performance of Project 100,000 people. Yes. That, and that, that is, and that I reached a com- completely different conclusion. And by the way, this hostility towards the project isn't just way in the past. In 2006, a New York Times article called Don't Dumb Down the Army called Project 100,000 the failed experiment of decades ago. Well, so I, I could speak We're not talking to... ancient history altogether here. Oh, sure. Well, I could, I could speak to us having the experience of graduate students who've written theses on Project 100,000 and coming across a largely negative, um, you know, historical record of it with very little positive to be said by it. But to be fair as well, it seems that, that many of the critiques that are leveled against the project seem to focus on the issue of racial insensitivity or upon its its being used as a tool to facilitate, as Christian Appy describes in, in his book, Working Class War, the idea of, you know, the, the poor man fighting the rich man's war. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, having, again, a class connotation to yes, what Project 100,000 was. That's right. Uh, and uh, after the project was over, years later, people writing about it uh, would call it the failed experiment of years ago. And... Uh, I looked at the the data brand new back in 1987, mm-hmm. then again in the 90s, and then more recently uh, when the the New York Times article came out, and I realized that one of the problems was that there was this comparison of the Project 100,000 people with the non-Project 100,000 people, that is, those who were fully qualified. And I noted that, that that's an interesting comparison, but it fails to answer the direct question. Will we get any good service out of these people? And in doing that, I found that what happened was that, for instance, out of 100,000 people, 85,000 were successful. 
and yet the entire group is being called a, a failure. When you describe success, what do you mean? Beg your pardon? When you oh, say I'm success, talking about that mean? they completed military, basic military training. They completed job training. They completed their first term of, of service with the honorable discharge and with ratings of good or satisfactory or above. Uh, and uh, all along that, and they had only, only about 3% had any disciplinary problems at all. In other words, 97 thousand out of a hundred thousand didn't commit any of those horrible crimes that Senator Salt was talking about. Didn't even have minor misdemeanor infractions. So this is what I said. When you look strictly at the at the hundred thousand people themselves, how they performed, it's completely different than what was presented because people were comparing them to the non project hundred thousand people and would make claims like this. The project hundred thousand people had three times the disciplinary action. And that was true. But the non-Project 100,000 people had 1% infractions, and there were 3% for the Project 100,000. So that while that statement is literally true, it really, uh, re- really does not give an accurate picture of the fact that 97 out of 100 of the Project 100,000 people had no problems at all. Right, right. I mean, it, and, it falls with the, the margin of error of the sampling as well. Oh yeah, I mean, the whole, so the whole argument is just totally uh, fallacious uh, in terms of representing how these people did in the military. Why do you think there was such a, a, a? Why do you think there remains such a desire to to label this program as a failure? You know, I, I think it's in part because a lot of people just who make these comments aren't really familiar as they should be with the data. They are they simply repeat what others have said. That's one thing I've noticed. And another thing is that they don't look at other activities of the military where they have used a lot of low-aptitude people. Uh, for instance, after Project 100,000, when the all-voluntary force started, by accident, the Department of Defense made mistakes in this norming of its aptitude test, and it brought in more people in the lower-aptitude ranges by accident and without knowing they had them than they had done in all of Project 100,000. And during that time, there was zero, zero argument about low-aptitude people because they didn't know they had them. Hmm. In fact, I was working in uh, West Germany at the time at headquarters USER in 1979 interviewing uh, battalion commanders, and I was told repeated, these are the greatest people we've had. Yeah, and I said, well, how about the new recruits? Uh, because by then they had discovered that there had been this mistake, and these they said, "No, these are great. These are the greatest folks they ever had." So what I find here is this kind of a, as I mentioned, a, a, a bias about people once they're categorized as being in the lower mental abilities, and a lot of that is there's a touch of racism because mm-hmm. African Americans were traditionally overrepresented in those levels. In fact, in one study that, that was done in a book called Marginal Man in the Military Service, they pointed out that during World War II, a lot of the people were being categorized as in the lower mental quality. Right. And and they were having all sorts of complaints from commanders. And so personnel people simply cut in half the range would that would be called lower mental ability. And they called them higher mental ability. After that, all complaints stopped. Huh. So uh, there, there is an, there, you know, there's real reason to believe that bias 
uh, is involved here. Also, the uh, the idea that the military simply wants to be seen as something better than how it was seen in the Vietnam War era. Right. From the military side, they just don't want to have that negative perspective anymore. So I argued years ago when I was a member of the National Commission on Testing and Public Policy, I argued along uh, with other members of the commission that we should we should regard these kind of standardized test scores uh, with a, a great deal of skepticism. Be very careful about uh, how uh, we are able to uh, go around and classify people as not fit for something based upon a single test score or even a small battery of test scores. It's, it's a very... It excludes lots of people from opportunities uh, that they could, in fact, be successful in. So I come out of that kind of a perspective after having studied all these uh, years of, of work on low mental ability in the, in the military and I read a lot of the congressional testimony. I recall when this fighter named Cassius Clay mm -hmm. was uh, being considered for being military service and it was rejected because of his low mental ability scores and senators were just appalled that a man who could give poetry and and uh, bounce like a butterfly <laughs> that uh, this man was being rejected from from the army because of low mental ability uh, and, and uh, you know this, this this whole prevailing attitude that we have in this country and, and some other western countries I would say about people once we give them so-called IQ tests or we give them aptitude tests and even when we give them tests like literacy tests people who score low on these are frequently perceived to be totally incapable of uh, learning and performing well in uh, in our modern society and I think that that uh, that's just a uh, a bad point of view for us mm -hmm. if we're going to be trying to uh, better the nation as a whole. Well, let's call that then your your historical assessment of Project 100,000 and its legacy for future generations and for those who read the article. As we close up our discussion of Scraping the Barrel, let's return to Sanders Marble for some closing thoughts. For all the benefits attending the use of substandard troops in wartime throughout all of our case studies, it clearly hasn't proven to be a perfect solution, has it? No. Um and part of it is, I think, uh, the problem, if you label somebody substandard in peacetime, um, then you've given them a, you know, it's like giving a dog a bad name. Um, uh, people have, uh, people, you know, military officers doubt this group uh -huh. and don't trust them, and often they are given you know, less training or, or older equipment. Uh, and any problem that they give is blown uh, or, su or suffer is blown out of proportion. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, and if some, that's a problem. Uh, oftentimes there are just, uh, the men are, it's a nice idea, but the men actually aren't up to it. Mm -hmm. uh, you can look at the Bantam, the British uh, experiment using uh, too short men, mm -hmm. under, under literally undersized men in World War One. Some of them were robust miners. Some of them were just puny and mm -hmm. couldn't uh, hack it in trench warfare. Uh, so sometimes the idea is flawed. Uh, sometimes execution is flawed. Sometimes the uh, 
the, the people that, that are rounded up. Uh, the, the Soviets in World War II rounded up political prisoners. Right. Um, and they managed to make it work, at least to some degree. We, we know they did it, um, and they got some value out of it because they continued to do it. But at a, uh, a level of compulsion that I think most countries would shy away from. Yeah. You know, in your conclusion, you bring to bear a critical point that I think needs repeating, too. You know, as, as the United States and really other Western powers enter the information age, Physical strength really is no longer a sole criterion for military service. You know, we look at intelligence, reflexes, intuition, even moral judgment, all becoming requisite factors for individuals who are entering the military, you know, who will be taking on evolving roles in the military. I'm right. thinking about, you know, piloting unmanned vehicles, for example, or uh, cyber warfare or information warfare. That said... Is it time, perhaps, for our military institutions to reassess what skills are most needed and revise the classification of fitness to incorporate these other, perhaps, ancillary factors? Well, um, our timing uh, on this interview is uh, pretty impeccable. Isn't uh, it? <laughs> two, day, two days ago, our, uh, actually, let's see, Two days ago was the, uh, the floating the balloon, and then yesterday, uh, Secretary of Defense Panetta announced that combat positions would be open to women, mm -hmm. U.S. military. Uh, he doesn't have authority over everybody, everybody's military, but uh, at least in the U.S. Uh, I don't know. Um, I, there is scope for classifying uh a wider range of jobs, I think, for people of, of inadequate or inadequate physical capabilities. Uh, of, of different capabilities. Of, just, different, just, yeah. yeah. Uh, um, assessing what the, the, the specific um, physique and skills for, for various jobs are. Um, I mean, really, what are the skills required for piloting an unmanned vehicle? I mean, the, playing a PS, uh, PlayStation 2 is probably. Mm -hmm you need, but um, uh, as long as there's a need for people to, to carry uh, heavy rucksacks and rifles and go up bridges and into villages and kick down doors, mm -hmm. um, you, know, you can't, uh, warfare is, is not a push-button thing these days. More of it is push-button, but not mm -hmm. all of it. Not all of it yet. Still need uh, for, beat for boots on the street. Yeah, uh, because if you just rely on remote uh, targeting and such, you get into nasty ethical questions of assassinations and mm -hmm. collateral damage, and the enemy will hide amongst civilian populations and such. Um, we don't have an answer. I think this will continue to evolve. Uh, I think most of these historical cases where a group was substandard for um, uh, race. Uh, those are, at least in, in the U.S. military, and most of the Western militaries, I think those are over. Mm -hmm. um, so this continued uh, discussion on this topic uh, will probably focus on uh, gender uh, and on... Um, uh, non-Western militaries. Mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. um, before, before we uh, say that, that 
there is no real need for physical strength in the military or endurance and such, um, it's also worth looking at uh, an evolving battlefield where, yes, many people are in, in rear areas, uh, maybe even a continent away, flying a, a remotely piloted vehicle. But supply convoys are getting ambushed every day or every week. Mm-hmm. And, and instead of being able to say, oh, well, only the infantry and, and people in armor units are in combat and need to be strong or male, uh, we're finding that everybody needs to have a, a level of physical uh, ability. And, and you know, const- and cognitive, concentrated, concentration, too, yeah. Uh, but also training in how to respond to an ambush. They're, they mm-hmm. can't just be trained as truck drivers. They can't just be trained as military police or uh, uh, whatever, you know, signal personnel to, to operate you know, the radios and, and mm-hmm. uh, computer networks. They have to be able to defend themselves uh, and, and counterattack. Uh, there there you know, obviously won't be equipped and trained the same way the infantry are, but uh, too few people that are are uh, fully physically fit will raise problems. I think that's a good place to close our discussion of the book, you know, which makes you know, it's a very timely volume and, again, very evocative essays. Sanders, got to ask you our last question. Um, this, of course, was an edited volume, a different set of conditions and circumstances sure. for the Seder monograph. But do you have any ideas for a future monograph? What are your plans going forward for your next project? I do have a, a, a monograph coming out shortly, uh, which goes back to my earlier dissertation work uh, on artillery on the Western Front, the um, uh, Western Front of World War One. So, but that's that's not what I'm working on now because that's uh, uh, finished essentially. Right. Uh, I'm just looking for forward to massive royalties. Uh, <laughs> Aren't we all? I, yeah. <laughs> um, I'm not sure. I'm I'm interested in uh, a particular battle in World War One. Uh, it was a one-day uh, affair where the Germans were actually. In the middle of March 1918, when the Germans are usually thought to be running rampant over the uh, British and even the French, mm-hmm. uh, when the French came up to help. Um, but in this particular circumstance, the Germans were just stopped cold, uh, took massive casualties, um, and by mid-afternoon, Ludendorff had decided uh, that wasn't going to work, and he needed to shift elsewhere. Hmm. Um I do. I am working uh, with uh, another a co-editor on another edited volume. Um, uh, that's uh, a, a transnational uh, history of artillery in World War One, with with different chapters on different countries. Mm. Uh, and again, I think uh, edited uh, the edited approach works for that because you do have different subject matter experts. Uh, I'm optimistic that that will be a, a useful piece. I don't think it's going to sell a lot, um, but it will be in, in university bookshelves for people to, to uh, benefit from. And probably up in a lot of reading lists and a lot of dissertations, too, which is just as valuable as some yeah. a lot of copies. Yeah. can uh, educate the next generation of scholars, if even if we're not... Uh, 
reaching a wide audience, <laughs> or, or maybe reaching them indirectly is, is the way to think about it. Because if those folks write things and, and start teaching, then then it will, this will that kind of book will ripple more than it will uh, sell a, a million copies like uh, Stephen Ambrose. Right. Well, let's not count on this. Let's not not count on this one sending ripples out as well. Sanders Marble, thank you for joining us today. Thank you. And we'll also thank Tom Stick for taking the time out of his schedule to speak with us. I enjoyed our talk, and I'm looking forward to your next works. Uh, in the meantime, on behalf of New Books in Military History, take care. You've been listening to our interview with Sanders Marvel and Tom Stick about their recent essay collection, Scraping the Barrel, The Military Use of Substandard Manpower, 1860 to 1960. On behalf of New Books in Military History, this is your host, Bob Wintermute, thanking you for listening.